Hi, and welcome to Happiness Through Hardship, the podcast. I'm Karen Sullivan, the founder of Pretty Wellness, a two-time breast cancer survivor thriving with stage four disease and author of the book that shares the same name as this podcast, Happiness Through Hardship, a cancer guide and journal for patients and caregivers. I'm also a girl who wishes on pennies. I try to see the good in everything, even when life is not so great. But sometimes it takes a little more. And this podcast will provide you with what worked well for me, success stories of people that have been through hard times and simple suggestions that brought hope, resources, and connections. I hope you've been able to catch our recent episodes, including topics about parenting, healthy living, chronic illnesses, career advice, and much, much more. Now, if you like these episodes, please do me a favor, rate, review, and subscribe. Your efforts truly will help this podcast get noticed and help us inspire more people. And now, for this episode, I am so excited to introduce you to Dr. Karen Heenberger, a physician, investor, diabetes expert, and CEO of Lifebulb, a patient engagement platform that provides resources, services, and support for those living with chronic illnesses. Now, she has a storied health history and tells us about her journey with diabetes and more. Karen has not only received tremendous accolades for her professional work, she also has a huge heart, which you will hear on this episode. So please grab your favorite drink, get cozy, and let's get started. Hello, everyone. I am incredibly honored to be here today with Dr. Karen Heehenberger. She's a physician, investor, business executive, and diabetes expert. She has spent over 20 years of experience in leadership positions at big brands such as Johnson & Johnson, iTech Pharmaceuticals, Coronado Biosciences, and at two large investment firms. Karen's dedication to diabetes is reflected in her personal and professional experience, as well as being a part of the senior team of JDRF, as well as conducting postdoctorate work at Joslin Diabetes Center at Harvard Medical School. She's the co-founder and CEO of Lifebulb, whose mission is to connect people, inspire change, and impact lives. They're a patient empowerment platform which centers around improving the lives of those impacted by chronic disease. Now, I met Karen virtually through a mutual friend and neighbor. It was one of those moments where the stars were aligned and the sun was shining down on me physically and metaphorically. I received a text from our friend Megan who said, hey, hope you're doing well, Karen. Just thought of you. Your post was right next to one from an inspirational mom in Maeve's soccer class. Karen is amazing and seems like someone you really should know. And then when I looked her up, I was in awe. Karen, who, by the way, spells her name differently like I do, is not only the CEO of Lifebulb and other high accolades, which I mentioned above, she is the mother to a beautiful little girl. She's a double transplant recipient who has also had a storied health history, yet is still smiling every day. She totally sounded like someone I wanted to meet, and now, luckily for us, you will get to meet her as well. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you so much. I'm I'm really excited to be here. Well, I like I said, it was it was as if 
someone, the universe was looking down on me when I was sitting there working and I received that text from Megan saying, you've got to meet this woman. She's not only a great story for the podcast, but just in life, she's done so much to make the world a better place. And so I I just want to jump right in. Can you uh, start to share with the listeners your story of, of how life came about for you moving in the direction of becoming a diabetes expert, an entrepreneur, a medical professional expert. I want to know where it all began. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a long story. Um, so I, I'm Swedish. I grew up in, in Stockholm in Sweden. Uh, but I, during my childhood, I lived in America actually for two years and I uh, went to high school in Paris. Uh, so I had, had a kind of a very international background where I, I moved a lot my, with my parents, with my family, a very, very tight family. We are still incredibly close. And I got to say, COVID has actually made it even closer because I moved to Westport, Connecticut from New York City with my daughter a year ago and my parents and my sister who just had a baby in oh, June uh, and her husband, uh, everyone was here in Westport. So um, we have uh, seen much more of each other than, uh, you know, many years before that. So it's, it's really, it's really nice. Um, but anyway, growing up, um, we have one more sister. I have one more sister. So we have three sisters. That sister now lives in Barcelona and has two children who we really, really miss because we haven't seen each other in over a year because of COVID. Um, And um, uh, but back in Sweden, I I had a very, I would say, good childhood. We did so much together as a family, a lot of sports. Um, I was always very interested in uh, in medicine. Um, Really, as a young person, I was fascinated by what made people sick and what made people um, recover, what made people healthy and, um, you know, what drove that and how, how did other, um, how had people in the past sold for disease? And I wanted to understand more. So I, I, I was reading so much as a young child. I read uh, about these stories about um, how discovery and science and, but at the same time, I was an incredible, um, I mean, a really, really good athlete. So I, I, I spent my time doing sports, really. That was the majority of my time. And my sport was um, mostly tennis. Um, I mean, I started very young with uh, gymnastics and then track and field. But tennis became my, my real, my love. And I played every day. I, I ended up playing on the Swedish national team. And um, wow. that was, was, was quite competitive. But then one day when I was 16, um, uh, for the past few, I would say, month, weeks, I had lost a lot of weight. I was tired most of the time. Even though I, I continued to push and continue to play tennis, I was more tired. And um, I had all the classical symptoms of type 1 diabetes, but um, you know, no one in my family had had it or knew anyone who had it. So we we didn't recognize it. It was not until I visited my grandparents up in the north of Sweden, where they immediately um, saw that something was wrong. And they took me to the local hospital, and I was immediately diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And it, uh, I would say to this day, it was the worst day of my life. Um, It was so dramatic. It was such a diagnosis that, you know, I had gone from 
feeling pretty invincible, feeling that I could do anything. I was good in school. I was happy with my friends, with my family and a good athlete. And here my body was failing. And it was that feeling that I could not do anything about it. I couldn't push harder. I couldn't work harder. I couldn't, you know, do anything to change it. I needed to inject insulin every single day, several times a day for the rest of my life. That was the, uh, that was what I was told. And it, it hurt me very much. So I was in the hospital for a few days, but um, I decided upon leaving the hospital that this was not going to change anything. I was going to continue to do what I love to do. And no one, no one really needed to know about this. Okay. So I decided to hide it. Um, and I told my parents, you're not allowed to tell anyone that I have diabetes because this is a big disgrace. It's something I'm afraid of and, and I'm, uh, I'm ashamed of. Wow. Um, yeah. So, and they didn't know much about this. And I got to say, my parents are fantastic, but they're not maybe, um, they, they haven't studied psychology or <laughs> they had no experience in this. So they said, okay, we'll, we'll just continue and, um, and do everything we can to keep you healthy. And they did. Um, you know, we, we we really, I would say, changed our habits and um, and um, uh, you know made made everything around um, you know a better, healthy life for for me. Um, and it, uh, I did, I did do well for the first few years with diabetes, and uh, and it drove me even more to be interested in in medicine. Of course, I mean, if I'd been interested in yeah. medicine before, uh-huh. this made me super interested, and and. Uh, and now I was determined to go to medical school. Um, and, and I did. Um, after high school, I went very uh, quickly, directly to medical school. In Europe, you don't have college. So as an 18-year-old, I, I was already starting um, medical school and, um, and learned um, about my, my own disease and about other diseases. And, and I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. And I kept my disease again as a, as a secret to my friends, to everyone around me. Uh, but I kept it in um, in control. I was in control of my disease. Okay. It was not until I moved to the U.S., which was when I was 25 years old. Um, and I had now finished medical school. I had finished my clinical internship and I had done a Ph.D. <laughs> so I was in this super speed because everything I felt yeah. that with, with the diabetes, I felt I had only a certain amount of time. And it was um, it was clear to me that um, I was worried. I was worried that I would get sick and I wouldn't have enough time to complete everything that I wanted to do. Uh, so I I rushed and um, I ran. And um, uh, when I got an opportunity to move to the U.S. and do a postdoc in diabetes research at the Joslin um, in Boston, I, I took it. And for some reason, when I moved to the U.S., I left my family, I left my friends, I left everything that I knew and just moved to Boston where I was really among the youngest in the lab and um, and uh, with my friends. I continued to hide my diabetes, but I also stopped treating it well. Uh, I was so tired of being perfect and, and I was so tired of constantly managing my blood sugar and measuring and dosing and and, and restricting. So um, instead of doing all that, I, I, I kind of tried to live a little bit. And I, I think this is reflective of, you know, a bigger problem. Um, when you have a chronic disease, 
most individuals, you, we, we don't want to think about it all the time. Uh-huh. But, but a chronic disease kind of requires you to change your behavior yes. and think about it. And, you know, you can't be positive all the time. You yeah. can't just say, oh, I have cancer, but I'm still happy. Yes. Or, you know, I have diabetes, but it doesn't bother me because it does. Life isn't always great. And as a young person, when everyone else is doing what they want, when they want, and you have a disease that restricts you, it kind of feels unfair. So I had years of just really uh, essentially rebelling against this disease. And um, it was not until I started to to feel really bad that I, um, I realized I cannot continue like this. I need to take care of myself. Um, And I don't know if these years of not uh, being totally in control with my blood sugar uh, triggered all the complications that I had. I I, I do think that I was in such good control for many years that, you know, a little bit of deviation may may, may hurt somewhat. I think it was a bigger issue. But about 20 years after diagnosis and after, you know, really running from um, one high power job to another and, and really fighting. Um, I just collapsed. My body collapsed. It was um, it was very clear. It was um, a trip from from Europe, no, from the U.S. to Europe. And when I landed in Europe, my legs were so swollen. I was in such pain, and I was so exhausted. I just wanted to sleep. And and I went to the emergency room, and my my blood pressure was sky high, two twenty over one eighty. My bloods were down to six. I needed blood transfusions. And I had protein in my urine. So my kidneys were failing. I was in acute kidney failure because of, of my diabetes. And, and this was, of course, a big, big moment in my life. And I, I realized I cannot keep running so hard. I need to slow down. I need to start understanding what's wrong with my body. And I need to start taking better care. And I, if I want to survive, I have to make changes. So um, I did, and I actually started um, instead of working in in jobs where it was more about my career and more about the return um, when it comes to money. I I took a job with Johnson and Johnson where I felt that I was making a bigger difference in the sense that I was now working in diabetes and uh, bringing products to the market that could help others. And I. I, for the first time in my career, started using my own experience with diabetes um, as somewhat of, of a way to assess new technologies. And, and, and that was great. Um, I realized that people who are living with a disease are actually experts in their own disease. And it sounds absolutely obvious, but it's not. You know, if you look at companies that are bringing better products to the marketplace, pharma companies, biotech companies, and so on, even consumer companies that are working in healthcare, for some reason, they are often dismissing the patient um, and only considering the doctors and nurses and um, uh, insurance companies and, and others who are going to pay for the product. And, and this was really the origination of the idea to start Lifebulb, which is the company that I uh, co-founded now six years ago where our whole mission is focused on the individual who's living with the, with the disease and the care partners. So we believe very strongly that individuals who are living with the disease and those who support that person, being a spouse, a child, mm-hmm. a parent, you know, they know so much that those insights we need to gather, we need to 
quantify and we need to curate. And then we need to solve for the problems that they identify and do that together with the patients and the care partners. So instead of just using scientists, business people, and medical doctors in solving problems, we actually integrate the patients in that equation and let them drive. And we assist and we, we prod, but the reality is that these moonshot ideas coming from individuals who are living with the disease are, are so incredibly useful. They may not always be new drugs or uh, molecules because most patients may not be scientists, but they're often uh, devices or healthcare IT products or consumer products. It could be a better um, you know, pill box. It could be a better injection pen. It could be a better um, you know, coffee mug that you can hold when you have rheumatoid arthritis or you know, devices that help you when you walk and you have multiple sclerosis or you know, a cooler looking cane or, or a wheelchair. So these patient-driven solutions that we call that are are derived from patient entrepreneurs are really what we 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 live for at Lifebulb, and we we curate them, we assemble them, we try to find financing for them, and we put them back in the marketplace. And lately, we have also been um, building our own product because we believe that with all of these insights and with the network that we have developed uh, with the number of patients who are part of it now, uh, we actually can, can bring those products to the marketplace. And, you know, the area that we are most focused on now, and uh, again, it's personal to me because even though I wanted to change and I, I was determined to take better care of myself, I... Uh, it was too late. And, um, and now 12 years ago, I, I needed a kidney transplant because of my diabetes. And I was incredibly lucky because my father um, gave me a kidney. And, um, wow. and that kidney, of course, saved my life. Because if I had not received a kidney from my father, I would have had to wait for at least five years on dialysis yeah. to, um, to, to, to get a kidney. And nine months after the kidney transplant, I got a pancreas transplant, which means that I no longer need to inject insulin. I no longer need to monitor my blood sugar because my diabetes is being treated with the new pancreas that I received. So within nine months, I got two transplants. And now 12 and 11 years ago. Um, so I'm living with two transplants, which is not easy. <laughs> uh, I'm immune suppressed. And of course, there are lots of side effects and complications that can occur. But you know, that really has made my life worth living again, because I now realize how difficult it was to live with those diseases. And 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 I need to now be sure that every single day I make an impact. I think that is, um, you know, anyone has gone through something hard, something tough. I think when you come out of it, you you realize that it, it, it was not just for nothing that you were chosen to 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 survive. And I think um, we we have to give back. And, you know, more than more than having to, I think when you reach a point where you want to provide service and where you want to help others, that's when you feel the best. And that's when you do the best in your in your health as well. So there is um, there is something to the whole AA model, uh, you know, where where a sponsor is often someone who has been through um, uh, the disease, him or herself. They're in recovery. And it's the same for a person with diabetes or a person with a transplant, a person with cancer. When you start giving back, you actually 
uh, feel better about yourself as well. Plus, of course, you help others. Right. It's so, so powerful. Yeah. I mean, your your story, I can go so many different directions. It's so powerful. I mean, st- I don't want to say starting, finishing all of what you have mentioned from your own experience to how Lifebulb is giving back. It's innovative. It's helpful for the patient or the caregiver. And also it's got to be empowering, not just for them, but for you and those in the company that not only are you bringing to life solutions that can really help a patient live a better life, but you're helping them do it. And so many times as, as you and I both know is living with a chronic illness is there's, there's sometimes even in, you know, the best, the worst of times you, you start to, your, your hope isn't always there. And so you've got to find ways, or at least I'll speak for myself. I've had to find ways to connect with hope. And when you're building something that is a, a phenomenal way to do it because you're giving back and trying to make life better for others. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're right. And you know, it's true that the network that we have now in 11 different chronic diseases with life bulb because we started in diabetes and of course transplant is important but we're also in another nine uh, therapeutic areas including cancer multiple sclerosis inflammatory bowel disease uh, psoriasis but also mental health and and addiction so um you know most chronic disease come with some sort of mental health issue yeah. um, you know when you're living with something so serious it's hard not to be depressed sometimes or have anxiety but, you know, there's also very serious mental illness, um, uh, which, which uh, you know, is more primary. And that, that's critical, too. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I studied medicine to be a medical doctor, and, and, and I did research to be a scientist or, or to do science. And I feel that I'm learning more about medicine and, and especially about people with, with the disease uh, than ever. Because with Lifebulb, I speak to patients every single day. And I learned from them. And it's it's a privilege. Uh, yeah. It's a job, but it's a privilege. Now, when you were first diagnosed, and I, I hear you when you say it was the worst day of your life, it was, uh, you know, in I think the late 80s, early 90s, so it was slightly a different time. Um, the medical community has advanced so much in many different ways since then. What do you say to patients that are diagnosed today with type 1 diabetes, knowing what you went through, but also what's on the horizon? Yeah, uh, you know, um, they did everything wrong, I think, when they diagnosed me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was, it was, um, the, I remember still the nurse telling me, um, you know, 16 years old. And, the, and, and I remember what she told me, she said, you know, if you'd been diagnosed 70 years earlier, you would be dead now because, and, you know, just telling someone who has no concept of disease has never really been sick, that they would be dead. It's not motivating. It's it's really not motivating. And it just makes the severity of the disease so significant. But, you know, nowadays, I think it still happens though, because if you're diagnosed with type one diabetes as a child, um, at least in Sweden, uh, it's, it's, they're being very careful and, and you're not being told by yourself, you know, you don't normally have a family member there. You know, I think that's very important that you have someone with you. You're not alone in that diagnosis. And then uh, what is important is that you connect with another person who's also 
living with the disease because whatever you hear from the doctor and the nurse in the beginning, you don't hear everything because you're in shock. Uh So you do need that person with you who can listen, but you also need them to have questions, to be able to ask questions to someone who's similar to you versus just someone who's a medical expert, because there are questions such, you know, how is this going to impact my day to day, my day to day? You know, how am I going to meet friends? How am I going to date? How am I going to be pregnant? How am I going to go to school again? I mean, there's so many things that a person who has not lived with the disease just can't answer. But, you know, to your point, what is the future for a person with type one? You know, the reality is that insulin is still the drug. We have better insulins. They're faster. They're slower in the sense that they can be more targeted. We have pumps so that that a person with diabetes can be uh, much more uh, free. And you don't have to be um, deciding within half an hour. Now you have to eat now. now and But it's still the same same disease. You know, you still have to supplement insulin from the outside and you need to measure your blood sugar. The blood sugar measurement have also improved in the sense when I was uh, diagnosed, we didn't have continuous blood sugar measurement. Now you can wear a device that measures your blood sugar and, and you can be much more in control. Um, but the, the, the treatment hasn't changed. You know, we still need to treat people with diabetes with insulin and it's still very, very tough to live with. So the, the development in diabetes have, have really happened on the device side in the sense that we have better pumps with better pens and we have better glucose measurement tools, but the actual drug is still insulin. And I, I really would, would love for there to be a change in the, in the next 10 years, you know, that there would be a way to treat people with type 1 diabetes with something else um, so that they wouldn't have to so totally supplement or or substitute what they what they don't have, um, which is insulin. And I'm sure even though things have changed, but haven't changed, but grown in, you know, such a, I'll call it a beautiful direction that there's other faster technologies out there in terms of diabetes. Do you, how do you give a patient hope? Because yeah. like you, it, hopefully their experience isn't as horrid to think, oh, you would have died 100 years ago. But it's it, truly going to be a change in whatever lifestyle they've had. How do you or others um, that you work with give a patient hope? Yeah, no, I think I think, you, you know, it's it's really going right now. I think people go between two extremes, you know, one saying, yeah, if you don't Uh, manage your diabetes, you will develop complications such as kidney failure and blindness. You know, that's not the best way to tell someone who's a teenager or a young person. Um, But but then you can say, well, you can live a very normal life, but you still have to manage your blood sugar all the time and you have to take insulin. Uh, But if you do that, you can have a wonderful life because look at some of the examples. There are people who are successful athletes. There are, you know, people who are successful professionals. People can have children now with diabetes, no problem. Um, it's wrong to say no problem. Diabetes is still a disease that needs to be managed yeah. on a on a minute-to-minute basis. So um, I think that it's important when you when you tell a young person, a new person, it's the it, the timing is everything. First, you need to treat the disease and 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 make sure that they learn what 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 it's like and learn all the different aspects of um, uh, the different treatments and measurements 
And then you have to give them hope, you know, and that again is showcasing stories and connecting them with those who have uh, lived with the disease for a while and who are living healthy lives and are able to. But I also think it's very important to 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 make sure that that these young individuals know that adherence to medication and adherence to a certain lifestyle is just it's just a requirement for type one diabetes. And I don't think there's one patient with diabetes who hasn't, you know, had 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 some problems for at least a period of time. You know, diabetes fatigue or or uh, being burnt out uh, just still happens and and you can't you can't beat yourself up for that i mean you it is so tough to be constantly managing that um it it, it you you can allow yourself to 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 be a little bit of a worse patient for a period of time but you gotta back get back because otherwise there will be consequences you know i i, I you're asking me a question that is hard to answer because there is no cure yeah um and um I, I do think that the best the best one can one can do as a physician or as a someone who's caring for patients is to really make sure that the patient is educated and to uh, show them that the materials the the devices are 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 much better and make them available so that the patients get trained on them because they're not that easy to use and connect them with a great group of people. So you know, Lifebulb we have a number of diabetes patients who connect with one another. There are wonderful uh, organizations such as Beyond Type 1, where uh, patients can connect with one another. And um, um, JDRF, of course, uh, the largest type 1 uh, foundation uh, in the world, where you can find another person who um, is living with type 1 diabetes and they can be your friend. You know, if I'd had that, I would say it's my biggest wish. When I was 16, if they had connected me with a 17, 18, whatever year old girl who who was living a life that I thought was great. Uh, I think I would have done better with my diabetes. I wouldn't have hidden it because I would have seen it's not something to be ashamed of. Uh, if this girl can do it, then I can. But well, I just didn't know anyone who had the disease. I, I hear you. I think that's it's so important. And I speak from my experience as somebody with stage four cancer, different, but yet I understand the the chronic parts of, of the chronic illness. And, and I can say I also have a relative that has type one diabetes. And we've had conversations about her childhood where she would say to me, some people understand, but some people don't. And so and I can't imagine. And growing up now, I think it might be easier for people that to try and understand because there's so much literature out there. There's so much connection via digital devices where we can try and learn what somebody is going through. Whereas in the eighties and the nineties, that wasn't as readily available. But to your point to have somebody who's walking in those similar shoes is whether they're just diagnosed or even if it was from years ago, I've got to imagine that you feel this instant connection. I know I do with other stage four cancer survivors that they understand things that other people just don't. And whether you're best friends or not, you don't even need that just to know that somebody's there to share some stories with and feel that instant connection can be really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So, I want to take a take a, a little turn here and talk about Lifebulb. 
you have so many powerful accolades behind you and so many different directions that you could go with your career. How did this actually originate? Yeah. So um, we're three co-founders, Steve Squinto, Ricardo Broglia, and myself. We're very good friends. And both of these uh, two men, they're they're very successful guys in the pharma biotech industry. And 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 we sat down and we talked. And and um, I told them that after I got my pancreas transplant, I I had kind of two big insights. The first one um, was that I realized how great I felt, you know, without having diabetes. I, yeah. I feel I felt so good. And it, w- it was the simple it was the simple things like walking down the street and being able to just have a cup of cappuccino, which has a lot of milk in it. And otherwise, with diabetes, I would have had to plan for it. And uh-huh. it would have made me feel bad. And, and I said to them, there must be a way for us to analyze um, what patients go through every single day and come up with new technologies to help you know, and, and source for those, because it's not just finding those very complicated molecules and biologics that companies like, you know, Johnson and Johnson, Pfizer, yeah. Merck come up with, but it's really the small details of daily life that, that will help patients right now. And, and they, they agreed. Um, and they said, um, you know, so how are you going to do that? I said, well, we need to build a community. And that was my second insight was that patients need patients. So number one, patients can be innovators. And number two, patients can um, uh, patients need patients. So but based on those two insights, we realized that there was a gap between so-called patient communities, such as uh, big disease organizations and industry where uh, companies are you know, working to build uh, drugs and uh, devices and and sell them in the marketplace and there's there's there was no bridge between where the patient's voice was heard and where the tools of the industry being marketing and sales and r and d um were were leveraged so we wanted to build life bulb really as filling that gap between the traditional disease organizations and industry. Um, and, and that's kind of what we've done. We know the language. We can speak the language of patients because we are patients. Yeah. Many of us on the Lifebulb team are patients, and we've built a network of patients. We call them ambassadors and entrepreneurs. And we have you know, hundreds of ambassadors and entrepreneurs now all over the world in different disease areas who communicate, who scale our message, and we co-market. And they help us with workshops, with innovation challenges, and we work together. And then we can speak the language of industry because we come from industry. I've spent 20 years on the industry side. Yeah. Um, and, and working between there, I think we can really bring better products and improve the outcomes for patients. So it was exciting to me. It was the right time yeah. because I felt healthy enough to, yeah. to be an entrepreneur. I mean, I felt that I could take the risk of, of starting a company from scratch. I mean, I was the only one in the company <laughs> and um, it was all dependent on me now. You know, we have we have a, a great team and um, and a wonderful network. But to start a company when you have a chronic disease, I think it's just a really um, it's, a, it's a tough decision. Uh, you know it because yeah. you've done the same. Um, you don't have the backup of um, of a whole team. You don't have the health insurance and the sick days and all that. You just have to do it all on your own. And it is a big step. 
Uh, but I, I love it every single day because I can drive it. I can be nimble and, um, you know, it's my vision. So it's, it's wonderful. Well, I, so much of what you've said is powerful and it's so, to me, it's just, it's so full of love. And I know that there are so many people out there that must be incredibly grateful that these opportunities that are coming out of life bulbs innovation or the conversations, let's even say, um, again, give people hope or might inspire them to make changes in their life or help out in a different way. And so I think you, you, you know, your story serves so many different purposes. But I would love if you would be interested at the end of every episode, I play what's called the grateful game because I truly believe in having mindful and gratitude practices in life. Would you be willing to play with me? Yeah, of course. Oh, good. So for those of you that are new to me, I play, as I mentioned at the end of each episode, the grateful game. It is something that my son, when he was nine years old, we started together and it really was just this act of trying to have a conversation about what we're grateful for and why at the end of each day. And what I found and what I've also heard through my doctors or through um, various journals or books that I've read is that having a mindful practice not only helps us with healing, but it can help us. Okay, can it help change my stage four disease? Well, it probably not, but what it can do is help me change my attitude, which then can help me feel happier, can help me find more calm even during the hardship of whatever I might be going through in life, whether it's the cancer or other things. And so Kyle and I play most nights and I will kick it off. I'll give us about a minute each to talk about little things, big things, whatever it might be, what we're grateful for and why. So I'll start out by giving the obvious. I am clearly grateful for my health Today is a new day. I feel wonderful. I am so very lucky and grateful that I have a good quality of life on my chemotherapy regimen. And I just, there's so much to say and almost so little to say of how lucky I am that seven years with stage four disease and I feel this good. I am grateful for the little things too, um, and we'll say this isn't so little, our mutual friend Megan that I brought up at the beginning of this call, she is somebody who in my career at Disney and ESPN played a huge role, and I'm so grateful for all the big lessons and little lessons she taught me there, but also as I was looking to transition into going to grad school, she was really helpful in being that sounding board for those conversations, and so I'm really grateful for her. Um, and I'll close it out with saying I'm really grateful for my extended family, the family I married into. And I say that because um, from this conversation, on both sides of my husband's family, um, there are cousins of his that have been touched with diabetes. And so I know some of their stories, which uh, made me even more excited to talk to you, knowing that uh, that uh, that you bring so much to the world, let alone to the diabetes world, which I'm sure has helped them in their cases. And so, um, you know, a big shout out to John and Julie that, um, that are near and dear to my heart, but also my husband's and I'm grateful for them and their families. So, um, I will toss it over to you now and, you know, share with us what you're grateful for and why today. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I'm also very grateful, um, for my health, um, my relative health, I, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to my family, my father for 
giving me a kidney yeah. and um, and to my doctors and nurses who um, who took care of me, who yeah. um, who uh, who helped me through two transplants. And uh, I'm also incredibly grateful to the family that decided to uh, to give up their daughter's pancreas when she died which is a very tough thing i mean it's um but it gives me life and it um it enables me to live better uh with my kidney and it enables me every day to to smile so i'm i have i have so much to great be grateful uh, to on a on a very big scale um i'm also incredibly grateful uh for my daughter uh you know with uh with the um with all the things that I'd gone through, um, it was not obvious that I could have my own mm-hmm. biological daughter, and um, and that was a process that that took time and uh, and fighting and uh, and medicine and uh, and and a lot of um, a lot of good people. So I am incredibly grateful uh-huh. to her because without her, nothing would make sense to me in my life right now. I she has. Uh, she has the biggest. Uh, she's the. She's the. She's the most important um, mm-hmm. every single day, and uh, I am very grateful to her, and to have her. But then on the on the smaller scale, you know, and what makes me happy because I I'm a person who lives very much moment to moment, and and I I I think that's how I survived. I'm grateful to uh, to the sun this morning. You know, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to see flowers. Um, you know, I'm grateful to be able to plant flowers in my garden. You know, yes. having a garden yes. and having being able to buy, buy some flowers yesterday that I can plant and um, and seeing them grow with my daughter is um, is a privilege uh, that I do not take for granted. You know, especially with this year we've had behind us. Many people have lived in small apartment rooms and had no greenery, had no outdoor opportunity. And and here I am and I have a garden and I have a daughter and I have my health and I have some uh, little pots of flowers that I can plant. And that's all life um, at different levels. So I'm grateful to life you know, every single day. It's so beautiful. And I will say if, if it matters, you won, you came ahead of me. And when I play with my now 12 year old, I'll tell you for the last three years, he's for some reason won every single time, but it's not about who wins or loses because the truth is, is even just tapping into one or two things that you're grateful for in a day can really put a smile on your face. And I just believe as you said earlier in this conversation, like when you live with any hardship, not just chronic disease, like some days are bad and it is okay not to be okay. Uh, but if there's something that can make you smile, it might make it a little easier in finding a little bit of joy during whatever journey you're going through in life um, can really be helpful in healing, in making the day better. And so for all of you out there, I am grateful that you've been on this journey with us in this podcast episode, and I am so grateful, Karin, for you for being here today, sharing your story, sharing your brilliance with the world through everything you've done, but also through um, through Lifebulb. And I want to give a big um, a big hug to everybody there. I'm wishing you lots of happiness and great health. And um, Karn, where can people connect with Lifebulb? 
So thank you so much for having me, first of all. But um, yeah, um, uh, you can connect. Uh, so LifeBob on, um, we have a website. It's www.lifebob.com. It's uh, L-Y-F-E-B-U-L-B. So LifeBob with a Y. Um, and of course, we're on social media. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. LinkedIn, and it's always life bulb with a Y, L-Y-F-E. And I will, and I, I'll, I'll make sure that I include all of these links in our show notes as well. So if you are driving and didn't have time to connect uh, and write down this information, it, they'll all be there for everyone as well. Wonderful. And then, of course, if you want to reach out to me uh, personally, I'm, I'm always available. And um, I am Karin. Uh, again, I think the spelling was, was said in the, in the beginning. Yeah. It's K-A-R-I-N. And so I'm Karin Lifebulb on Instagram and um, uh, I think on, on Twitter as well. Um, so please do uh, reach out to me as well if, if you would like. Well, again, thank you for sharing your story. There's so much inspiration personally, professionally, and just in life. And as you said, I'm going to leave with everybody as we, um, as we get off this podcast episode today, like go outside or look outside if you can. There are so many of the guests on Happiness Through Hardship, the podcast that talk about how nature can be healing. Now, as you said, not everybody has the ability to have a beautiful garden or a beautiful like outdoor area. However, even just growing herbs in your um, mini kitchen, um, the smell, the the beauty of the greenery can bring a smile to your face and can actually add some health and wellness and wholesomeness in, wholesomeness in your life. So again, um, uh, sending out big hugs and wishing you all a great day. Happiness, good vibes. Bye for now, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. I want to leave you with a quick thought, but first a request. Please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe. You leaving a review helps us with our podcast ranking. The higher we are ranked, the more people can discover our show. And tell your friends about us. If you love us, they might as well. And now, my parting words. I am a huge believer in patient advocacy. I love when organizations like Lifebulb help make life easier for the patient. Having been a cancer patient for over 16 years, it's really important for me to share my story and best practices on how to navigate with cancer. Now, if you know someone who's been recently diagnosed or is dealing with regular cancer treatments, please send them my book, Happiness Through Hardship, a guide and journal for patients, caregivers, and friends. I wrote it to help others through cancer and find just a little bit of joy along their way. Thanks again for joining us today. I am sending you lots of happiness and great health. Bye for now.